Welcome to Let's Talk Social Change with Sanja Alapakam. I am your host for today, and I'm joined here by Nathan Kennedy. Nathan is a human rights lawyer, law firm partner, social justice advocate, volunteer, and mentor. He's head of pro bono and community for Hall and Wilcox, is a part of the Australian Human Rights Institute Advisory Committee, and is a current member and former president of the National Committee of Australian Lawyers for Human Rights. Thank you, Nathan, for joining us today. Thanks, Pranti. It's great to be here. To start off with, what does your role as a head of pro bono at a large commercial firm look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, um, no day is ever the same, I have to say, uh, and uh, it's, it's certainly a busy role trying to look after a practice that spans a firm with, you know, over 900 people and, and almost 500 lawyers, and my main role is to make sure that we've got enough pro bono work to do, so it's really about running a practice, um, meeting with clients, which are often referrers like community legal centres or other places like that um, to work with them on projects or on referrals to make sure that we've got work to do. Um, There's obviously as a partner a lot of internal, I guess, administrative type work that needs to be done and also progressing projects uh, to board level and getting approval for certain things. And part of my role also covers the community side of things. Uh, So that's looking at how we can best uh, do non-legal volunteering and philanthropy and things like that. So developing policies for that and making sure that's all chugging along nicely Um, and working with the DNI section on various projects. Um, Now also working on some ESG, ESG offering of the firm. Um, and then amongst all that, doing some supervision on, on pro bono casework with my lawyers. So it's quite busy. And so what role does pro bono work play in protecting the well-being of people at the margins of society? Well, the main thing it does um, is give people access to the legal system that they would otherwise not have. And um, that's through either direct referrals um, from places like the CLCs I mentioned or increasing the capacity of places like CLCs uh, by providing lawyers on a common or, or our lawyers in clinics and things like that. Um, it's also important, I think, in law reform. We, we do a fair bit of law reform in our pro bono practice and that's, again, working with organisations that are on the ground and helping them put forward proposals for law reform uh, which better protect the rights of, of those people you mentioned. Um, and even just assisting charities and not-for-profits with their legal issues, that then frees them up uh, to really concentrate on what they need to be doing, which is helping helping those people. Um, and we can take care of their legal problems and save them um, having to spend their money on, on that type of thing as well. And... So why is it important for law firms to undertake pro bono? So is it a good thing that law firms have become more competitive in this area? For instance, by posting annual figures of the number of pro bono advice given per annum? Yeah, look, I think law firms have high-quality lawyers and significant resources, uh, so they're well-placed to be able to absorb the cost in undertaking um, pro bono work, you know, doing some work for free. So I think it's really important for law firms 
to undertake pro bono work much um, much more so than say a sole practitioner who who would struggle a bit to to do a lot of pro bono work. Um, you also have in a law firm a variety of expertise in one place. So so you've got a lot of different lawyers with a lot of different skills who can help a lot of different people. And it's really important for lawyers' development as well. You know, I think you're much better and well-rounded lawyer if you've done some pro bono work and actually engaged with the community and you're not just restricted to one area of expertise and don't deal with and, and only deal with one type of client and, and not um, sort of real people um, in the real world. Um, in terms of sort of firms becoming more competitive, well, I sort of hope it's not really a competition. I, I sort of I found when I became head of pro bono there was a real collegiality among the firms, among the pro bono leaders in the firms. And we certainly worked in partnership with other firms um, on pro bono projects and responding to different crises. Um, so I think it's great that there are more firms doing it um, and hopefully we can all work together more. Um, and it's, you know, it's good that we're measuring our hours. You know, the old adage, what gets measured gets done. So you need some sort of goal but we've got to remember that it's not just about racking up hours. You know, you know, what are we doing with those hours? It's important. Okay. And so how is pro bono work amongst law firms coordinated and encouraged by organisations such as the Australian Pro Bono Centre? The Australian Pro Bono uh, Centre does a fantastic job in supporting law firms in setting up and running their pro bono practices. They've got a really fantastic set of resources um, and were really helpful to me in setting up our practice um, and they've expanded to assist government lawyers and in-house counsel to take part in pro bono work. Uh, it really is a, a sort of a unifying organisation, I suppose, that assists in identifying unmet um, areas of legal need, encouraging collaboration and mentorship between firms probably does less in the side of direct coordination of work. And I'd say a, an organisation like Justice Connect, which many firms are a member of, probably has a larger role to play in that sort of coordinating of work um, between firms. And as a follow-up, how does the Australian pro bono model compare with other jurisdictions from your experience? I think it compares very well. I think probably Australia is second only to, say, the United States in, in its level of participation in pro bono. Uh, it's a real testament to the Australian Pro Bono Centre and the original law firms that helped set that up, um, that, that Australia is, is doing so well in pro bono. It's really an embedded part of legal practice here. Uh, I spent some time um, in Singapore over the last few years and spoke with the Law Society there about their pro bono system and they've relied heavily on advice from the Australian Pro Bono Centre. Um, and, you know, there are Australian leads in global firms who are based in, say, London, who have helped to improve the pro bono system in the UK. So there's a, the influence of Australia and its way of doing pro bono um, is being felt around the world, I think. And so pro bono is very entrenched in the legal profession. How are other sectors doing on corporate social responsibility and what can the legal profession learn from them and vice versa? Yeah, well, I mean, I look at pro bono as a lawyer's 
professional responsibility uh, as guardians of the rule of law. So access to justice is essential uh, to the rule of law. So I think in some ways we're in a quite a unique position compared to other sectors and other professions. Um, I, I see that probably other sectors do, do more general volunteering or philanthropy type work, which um, is extremely important, particularly philanthropic um, giving um, provides organisations with much needed money for their work and, and it's, it's extremely important. Um, and there are a number of law firms that have very good philanthropic arms, their corporate social responsibility. But I think that sort of side of things, the philanthropy and the volunteering is something that, that we could probably learn from other sectors. Um, and I think other sectors can learn from us uh, a lot about actually giving of their time and their expertise for the public good. Uh, lawyers obviously can't solve every problem um, and other professional services firms have skills that people need and, and cannot access. So I think that ability to give their time and their expertise is something they can learn from us. And could you please explain to our audience the relationship between human dignity, human rights law, and how these concepts inform your sense of identity and duty as a human rights lawyer? Yeah, well, I mean, they're inextricably linked. Human rights derive from human dignity. And I think human dignity is almost a concept that is difficult to define, but something you understand in its absence. So when someone has lost their dignity or had it taken from them, you, you understand what human dignity is. You can see what's been lost. You know, you can see if someone's been tortured, if someone's been locked up indefinitely, particularly when they've committed no crime, when you've seen someone left to die in their own filth because they haven't been cared for properly, that's when you can see um, that human dignity has been lost and that their rights have been violated. It's, it's really about when you see a person not being treated as a person, um, when they're being treated inhumanely. Um, and every argument involving human rights comes back to dignity. Uh, and you can find the limits on human rights um, if you think about dignity. So, for example, I spoke about the proposed amendments to Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act a few years ago to an audience and inevitably the discussion came back to free speech because, of course, Part of the argument was that you should have the right to say whatever you like, given the right to free speech. But there are limits on free speech, and those limits are there to preserve dignity, racist speech, hate speech. That they, they take away a person's dignity, humiliating someone with words based on an arbitrary thing like race takes away their dignity because you're treating them as less than. Um, and limits on all human rights can be found when you think about human dignity, which, which is there which is their source. So, so I think your, your duty as a human rights lawyer is, is to protect human dignity and as a pro bono lawyer, it's that dignity of equality before the law that everybody has a right to access the justice system and to be treated fairly and equally before the law um, is, is what you're really pursuing. Um, no one should be left out because, again, to do that is to treat them as less than, as, as if they're legal issues are not as important as other people's and their rights are not as important as other people's. And from your experience as a human rights lawyer, are there any cases that spring to mind that you would describe as formative 
or that you look back with fond eyes? Well, I wish I wish I was a, a Jennifer Robinson or a or a Jeffrey Robertson um, or an Amal Clooney and had some wonderful, fantastic, huge human rights uh, cases to to share with you. But um, I I get immense satisfaction um, from helping individuals, even with very small things, because often these things that seem very inconsequential in the grand scheme of things mean a lot to that individual's life. Um, But on a larger scale, I think my work with refugees is something that I see as quite important. Um, The years that I spent volunteering with RACs and sitting with people for hours after work going through these ridiculously long forms that the government needs them to fill in, taking statements with interpreters, listening to people tell their stories, giving them a voice that was otherwise denied to them, giving them that dignity, really. That is something that I look back on very fondly. And then to work with places like Refugee Legal when the Medivac legislation was in force and being able to act quickly, to bring as many people to Australia as possible, to give them the access to the right to health that was being deny them in the offshore um, prisons and then for the firm to follow that up to partner with PIAC to research and investigate whether the treatment they were brought here to receive was actually being provided to them, um, which then informed PIAC's report, Healthcare Denied. That was some really important work. Um, and I also have some really fond memories of my work with the Australian Lawyers for Human Rights Um, because it's such a myriad of human rights issues and such hardworking volunteers um, and the ability to work with people like that and draft submissions to government and to appear before parliamentary committees and, and have a say on how laws should be reformed in human rights compliance ways. Um, of course, it was frustrating when, when that was ignored by government, but satisfy, very satisfying to know that the contribution had been made and that those arguments were being put before government. Rupert Humphrey, former US Vice President, once said, the moral test of government is how that government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, and the handicapped. Your pro bono work has cut across each of these areas of social justice. I want to focus on your interest in elders' rights. We've seen the Aged Care Royal Commission after countless cases of abuse and neglect, the frankly horrific levels of devastation that COVID unleashed on aged care facilities, the vulnerability of older particular older women in homelessness. How is Australia doing in terms of treating its elderly? Well, I think the answer is probably not not great, uh, particularly when we look at aged care. And, um, I mean, it's great that there's been a a Royal Commission and and hopefully there there will be changes made. Um, But I think it really comes back to what we were discussing about Dignity and ageism is actually really at the heart of the abuse suffered by older persons. It's, it's sort of the, the last form of acceptable prejudice and, and you hear it coming from people's lips and I, I don't even think they realise it. So you hear people who would never make a casually racist joke who are quite happy to make some sort of joke about age or old people and 
we take it as something that's quite benign, but actually I think that's that's where the problems begin. And during COVID, we sort of saw a seeming acceptance that older people's lives were not worth as much as younger people's lives. Um, and there was a, a similar attitude on display um, to people with a disability. So it was sort of like an attitude of, well, these people are sick anyway, or, or these people are old anyway. And, and again, you can see in that language, um, people being looked upon as something less than their, their human dignity is not respected and, and therefore their rights are abused. And, you know, the, the right to life doesn't stop when you reach 65 or, or whatever the line is of when you're an old person. And obviously that is completely relative, you know. <laughs> you know? So um, if we approach things from a human rights point of view, maybe we would do uh, better when it came to our older people and people with a disability. And do you think the fact that we're an ageing population changed things for the better on this front? Um, look, I think I think that it's difficult to say. Possibly um, there can be a lot of votes among older people if, you know, if, as the population ages and that might make the politicians listen. Um, but I think the younger generation who will probably be in charge need to understand that there's an issue and I'm not sure if, if that's necessarily understood. Um, I don't think people necessarily understand that they're being sort of casually ageist. I'm not sure people really accept ageism or uh, as a a thing. Um, So I think no matter how many older people there are, they will still need a voice um, to help protect their rights. Um, And some of that will come from older people themselves. There's been some great older people who are fantastic advocates, but I think they'll need allies in the younger generation um, and it's important that we have these conversations. In building your career, you've managed to combine commercial work, specialising in insurance litigation with volunteering and social justice advocacy. What advice and encouragement can you offer to our viewers interested in taking a similar journey? Yeah, well, my, my career has been terribly unplanned, um, so I I would suggest that you don't do that. Um, <laughs> so I had not a lot of guidance or or mentorship when I was younger. Um, I was sort of the first with my cousins, the first in my family to go to university. Uh, didn't really know anyone in the law. Didn't really know what I was doing. Knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Definitely knew that since I was about fourteen. But um, but when I yeah, got to be a lawyer, that's when I was a bit like, um, what am I doing? Um, so these days too, you know, when you've got LinkedIn and you've got social media and things and you've got more access to people, so go out and find those mentors. Don't be afraid to reach out to people on social media. You know, I'm always happy to give my time to law students and I hope that other lawyers are, are too, so, so go and find those people and talk to them. Um, the other thing I would say is take opportunities. An opportunity to do my human rights masters came across my desk and I took it and it changed, you know, the course of my career. I even got to go to the UN really by chance because my actual applications for roles there were not successful, but but an opportunity came up to go through my pro bono work and I got to do that and that will be something that I will cherish forever. So get involved in as much as you can and the opportunities present themselves um, 
and and your choices are half chance and so are everybody else's. So you've just got to really be putting yourself out there. Um, I also think that you should embrace your commercial work and use it for good. So no matter what commercial work you do, you will have access to some of the best lawyers, uh, structured supervision and practical learning uh, that you won't get anywhere else. So, so take these skills and use them in your human rights work. You will learn how to be a lawyer at a firm and and that does actually mean something that's really hard to put into words, but you'll learn how to be a lawyer. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of approaching problems. You'll learn that at a firm and you'll be surprised how that can be applied to any area of practice. Uh, so believe in yourself. Don't just think you're, I'm just a, an insurance lawyer. I'm just a this lawyer. You're a lawyer and you can do a lot of things with that. And sort of following on from this, use the rewards of commercial practice for good. So, you know, in my second year of being a lawyer, I was earning more money than my mother had earned in her whole life. So, you know, there's a privilege to being a lawyer. Um, Commercial law has given me a living that I've been able to share with my family and my friends and means to assist the community. So be generous with that privilege. Um, I would also really learn about human rights. Don't think you know what they are just because you've got some gut feeling about what is right or wrong. I think it's really important to understand what human rights are as law. Um, And volunteer, give your time, give your expertise. You have a special place as a lawyer, so use it um, whenever you can to help people. And finally, I guess make a difference, even if it's to just one person's life and it's just in one small way. You know, sometimes it can be as simple as listening to them and offering to help them in a matter Um, and and it doesn't matter what the outcome is because sometimes they're just so appreciative that someone has taken the time uh, to help them, to see them, and and it's really about that really respects their dignity. So they'd be my words of wisdom. Uh, And that concludes the interview for today. Thank you so much for joining us and for imparting your wisdom onto us. Thank you very much, Brent. It's been great.